Are you holding on to a version of yourself that you think should exist? Or maybe even holding on to a life that you think should exist, but uh, something feels, I don't know, off? Learning to let go of the idea of what things should be and allowing your life to actually be is the only way your best life ever can happen. I'm your host, Life Coach Meg Ellis, here to teach you how to stop trying to control your best life ever and actually create it instead. How? Well, it begins with self-discovery and a little bit of positive energy. On today's episode of Create Your Fate, I have a conscious conversation with New York City Soul Cycle Master Instructor Melanie Griffith, who shares the lessons that she's learned through her battles with cancer that have actually allowed her to let go and allow her best life ever to happen. And despite the battles with disease, divorce, and death, she wouldn't change one thing. Tune in for part one of Melanie's incredibly inspiring story and begin creating your best life ever today. Hey guys, and welcome. I'm Life Coach Meg Ellis. It's time for you to stop coasting through life, and it's time for you to find your purpose. It's time for you to create your fate. Melanie Griffith, Soul Cycle Master Instructor in charge of the whole brand experience. And there's, I mean, honestly, there's so many more titles that I could give to you, but you're here. Thank you so much for being here today. So happy to be here, Meg, really. I'm excited anytime I get to spend time with you and talk. I know. I always love our, our moments together. I know you've been influential in, in my own experience from the employee side you know, of SoulCycle. So tell us a little bit more about your role, how you got here. What does brand experience actually mean? And why are you the perfect person for that? Brand experience really just sort of means how are we all, particularly instructors, showing up in the best way possible to represent the mission and purpose of our brand. Mm-hmm. I am very loyal to sort of like the OG original vision of SoulCycle that a company and an experience that began in 2006. I was an early adopter, one of the original riders for many, many years. Ultimate OG. Ultimate OG. I am first rider that became (laughs) an instructor, which is something I'm really super proud of. And I know that nothing stays static. I know that we can all be inspired by this foundational principle of what soul cycle is about this community uplifting experience and like a garden of wildflowers each one of our instructors is their own unique authentic self and that blending of who you are as a person what motivates you what you believe and what soul cycle stands for experientially mm-hmm. have to come together and so that's that's really that's what brand experience is about. It really involves supporting instructor development, how we show up in our customer experience world as well, how we show up on our digital platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, all the moving parts. And there's there's a lot of them. So kudos to you for running that ship. And I, I know um, you're really the perfect person for the job 
right? And, and I, I mentioned even just from an employee standpoint, working with you is, is always a dream. And, you know, you're known in the SoulCycle world, if you're new to SoulCycle out there, as Mama Mal. So how did you get that name Mama Mal? Because that's going to go right into, you know, your life experience and everything we're going to be talking about today with all the lessons that you've learned. But Mama Mel, who, who came up with that? I actually don't even know. Um, you know, it just was something that just, I think it just organically happened. I love being called mama. I love my role mm-hmm. as a mother in life. I have three of my own yeah. children, the youngest one, really honestly, like one month away from becoming 20 years old. So all of them yeah. really yeah. adults. When I joined the instructor training team with some other really powerful women, Janet, Stacy, Sue, at the time, I was the only one that was a mom. And it was definitely a different perspective that I brought to the experience of training other instructors and just my perspective on life. And I think that mama-ness of me just became how I was known. Yeah. Um, And turned frequently into Mama Mel. Yeah. I mean, it's always been Mama Mel. So what do you think were these these qualities that separated you, these added extra special touches that Mama Mel provided to the team and, and outward into your life, I'm sure? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I certainly don't say it with anything but love and respect for anybody else who is not a mom, mm-hmm. right? There's so much life and learning, however you want to do it. For me, as a mother, I had had a lot of experience ushering another human being through developing stages of their life. And so I could relate to really where developmentally a lot of the instructor trainees were just as young adults, mostly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, And then just also throughout that, I think I have a deeply, and I'm not alone in this, but I have a deep empath and I am the type of mom for me that I'm always trying to be is one who's not just telling you how to be, but who's showing up in life in a way that you're proud of, that you want to model for the people Mm -hmm. coming up after you. Yeah. Well, that kind of, you know, goes into, you know, what we wanted to talk about today is, and I think it's an interesting point to take it from a mom perspective first of how do you, you know, and you're, you're in a transition now of, your last son graduated and he's what he's out he's out um, driving or yeah uh, traveling across the country or tell us uh, the backstory yeah. on that I'll tell you what it is I'll tell you where we are I just came back from Tucson Arizona where my it's my middle child my older son okay got it Aiden graduated graduated magna cum laude at a 4.0 his senior year oh my god um, yes from the Eller College of Management at the University of Arizona Um, This is a kid like all my kids who grew up in New York City. And when it came time for college for him, he wanted to get as far away into just a new environment that wasn't New York City, that wasn't going to have a lot of kids from New York City. And he just really wanted to experience something else. And he just graduated. And like any transition, it's going to take a little bit of time. I don't think it's an easy transition to come out of college. And he and his dad right now are, they just passed Memphis, Tennessee. They're driving back to the East Coast and he will be delivered home to me 
where yes. he's now going to be my roommate. Okay, uh, got it. So, so hands on. <laughs> yeah, hands on. I love it. Yeah, yeah. My so how do you? Pot, I'm going to tell you. My older daughter yeah. graduated two years ago, and then I have a younger one who who lives in Miami. Okay. Yes. And he is, what is, yes, it's yes. I was going to say there, there's mama Mel. There's just so many to keep track of because you're just a mother to so many and you're in an exciting season of your life. You're engaged. Yes, tell us about, tell us how that went. That's so exciting. And you just picked a wedding date. Um, we picked a wedding date. It happens to be one year from yesterday. And so we definitely celebrated. We're calling it our pre-anniversary. We went on a little date and went to an art museum and had dinner. My fiance, her name is Jessica. We were really looking back last night. We had a really deep, deep bonded connection from the moment that we met each other. But the first many, many years of our relationship, she was my best friend. Mm -hmm. And during that time, my ex-husband and I went through a separation, went through a divorce. She had her challenges. I had my challenges like we all do as human beings. And Mm -hmm. For the last five years, this it's really, truly just a love story. We fell in love with each other. And here we are five years later. And we went on a vacation to Scotland. And while we were there, we spent one day in the city of Glasgow, which is where my mother's from. A really beautiful story. That's where I proposed. Um, One of the few... I think moments in ever that she had absolutely no idea what was going on. Oh, that's um, amazing. It was a really big surprise, even though we had collectively already decided that that was going to be our next step. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So lots of changes, lots of transitions, lots of life experience. Tell me actually before Soul Cycle, what did life yeah. look like? So 2006 Ooh. and before. My, I was a corporate lawyer at a big law firm in New York City called Cleary Gottlieb. I graduated I graduated fourth in my class from Fordham Law School. Amazing. I then spent a year as a law clerk for a federal judge, the Honorable John S. Martin in the Southern District of New York, for which time I went and began my career as a corporate lawyer at this big law. That career truly it was motherhood that took priority for me. And I think it was really when I was pregnant with my second child that I just became very clear to me that I wasn't going to make the choice right then to continue working at the law firm and to be the type of mama that I wanted to be. It was not that much later that I did go back to work and started working at SoulCycle. But um, when my kids were were young, I made that choice. Mm -hmm. In between that time, after I left the law firm, when I was then pregnant with my third child, I joined the board of my kids' school and I did development work for them, fundraising work for them. My best friend and I at the time planned the big annual benefit for the school. So I always have been the sort of person who wants to be useful, productive, busy, doing something. Although it's always for me, been a little bit in a non-traditional path. Yes, um, I think yes. I got a lot of that from my dad, both the hard work and the non-traditional path. But I definitely wasn't a full-time working mama, but I was very, very busy. Yeah. Well, and as an Enneagram eights, you're an eights. Eights love 
impact and to create. And they are great visionaries, great leaders. And so it's very fitting, you know, and one thing when you're leading all these, not just, you know, motherhood of your own children, but now motherhood of literally everybody within a a huge company. And then even going back of being married and then not being married, being a lawyer and then not being a lawyer. There's a lot of control that I feel out of control, you know? So when there's so much change in your life, you know, in these life lessons, I I definitely want to dive into all of those. What has been this major theme for you of letting things go and allowing your life to happen? Because you end up in this beautiful spot where now you're engaged to the love of your life. Your children are doing yeah. so well. But how did you get here? How did you sure. alleviate all that control? Um, Meg, it's a great question. I do think we could spend a lot of time really breaking it down. I'm going to give you the punchline. It took me 50 years to get it all the way in my spirit. Yeah, And it took truly two times being diagnosed with cancer that I finally was in absolute full acceptance of this idea of let everything go. And it doesn't mean let go of your, who you are and what your values are, but this idea, you want to get on my wrong side, try to control me. (laughs) I'm going to react in that way. Like, don't you tell me what to do. I've always been fiercely independent in that way. Whether it's tell me how to dress to get a tattoo, what color my hair should be like. I spent a lot of years wanting to do the most to be on the other side of that. Right. I think I also spent a lot of time just trying to make everybody else around me really super happy. Mm -hmm. Make sure that he had what he needed and they had what they needed and I was doing the right thing. And and in that, I allowed myself to, I think, live in a just a state of chaos, Mm -hmm. lack of control in this sense of, I just, everything was just, I just was doing too much all the time, spurt, spurt, spurt. And even if, even if I'm as busy now, I've learned through real deep work, a lot of mindful (laughs) practice Mm -hmm. and healing, surviving and being on the other side of some cancer diagnosis, treatment, surgery, recovery, more mm-hmm. surgery, more treatment, and ultimately a, a place of now preventative care. Right. It's allowing everybody in my life to fill up the space that is authentically them. And I'm just going to fill up the space that's me. And I'm mm-hmm. honestly just going to, I just keep saying, I'm going to let go of everything. I'm going to let go of everything. Mm-hmm. I am not holding on regret. I am not holding on resentment. I am not holding on to anger. Mm -hmm. None of it. By doing that, I can take a look at myself. I can be observant. I can be aware. And I can continuously, continuously learn as I go. And if I can learn as I go, then I can show the people that mean so much to me and not just tell. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So this is such a journey, such a life lesson, not just one diagnosis with cancer, but two. So if you want to share, take yourself back to that time where you, that first diagnosis, Yeah. life immediately before and life immediately after, you know, what was important to you and what was not important to you anymore? Right. Or I guess we'll start there. One, one question. Yeah. So 
you go back in the timeline of my first diagnosis, I was first diagnosed in 2010. Soul Cycle opened in 2006. Mm-hmm. My youngest child was three, and then five, and then seven. For three years, I just, I was on the board. I was being a mom. I was doing my soul cycle. I was bringing my friends. I was making friends with the instructors. And when I turned 40 years old, Julie Rice, who's the owner and original founder, along with Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Cutler, said to me, maybe you're just going to teach your own birthday party. I had done several birthdays in class before. And so I put together a playlist and I put on a microphone and a lot of people that are still around at soul cycle were there. Sue was there. Stacy was there. Lori was there. Yeah. Julie and Elizabeth were there. And after class, Julie said, like, maybe you're thinking of expanding. Like, maybe you want to be a soul psych instructor. You won't have to pay for classes anymore. You could do it part time. <laughs> Done. You had um, me at that. Like, me? What? Who? Me? And, uh, and so that's kind of how it began. It was before she had convinced Janet Fitzgerald to come here from the yeah. West Coast to run yep. uh, her training program. And so at the time I had to get certified through another spinning association. It's called Mad yep. Dog. Oh God. Yeah. Mad teaching. Dog. Yeah. Mad Dog. <laughs> I did it in a weekend. Um, I started teaching free classes on Wednesdays and Fridays at noon. I did that for two months. And then honestly, pretty immediately I was working full time. We had opened in Scarsdale. It's a suburb of New York where Julie had grown up. Mm-hmm. And she said, listen, no one's going to know who you are you could be this thing. And so we're going to send you up there and you're going to build your career starting up there. Nine years, I spent some part of my week driving up to this town in Westchester and learning how to teach, learning how to build community, being part of a community, also teaching in the city. A year after I became an instructor, here's what I thought. I thought I was as hot shit as I've ever been. I was in the best (laughs) shape of my life. I felt like I could do anything. Probably I wasn't allowing myself to be too concerned about things that maybe weren't feeling right in my marriage or at home. And I just was on a go, go, go. Yeah. I went to a chiropractor. He noticed a bump on my inner thigh. And he said, I think you should go get that checked out. And I said like, oh yeah, you know, I've been so busy. I probably should go get a physical soon. And he goes, no, Melanie, I really like, I think you should go get that checked out today. And I was like, what what could you possibly be talking about? Yeah. And so it really was a matter of days only from that moment through my gynecologist, talked to somebody she knew, got me an appointment, did a biopsy. Within 24 hours of that, you're in the little recovery space and the nurse comes in and said, well, yeah, it's it's some form of lymphoma, but I'm going to let the doctor come talk to you. And you're like, what the fuck is actually happening? Yeah. I immediately, I think I spent 12 hours in rage, despair, Mm -hmm. rebellion. I think I went into Central Park. I bought a pack of cigarettes and like, smoked cigarettes, drank Diet Coke. <laughs> Do you even um, smoke? <laughs> no, no, you probably didn't. No, like, no I'm no, just gonna, no, I'm gonna just... I was in a panic. I was yeah. in a panic. I remember locking myself in the bathroom of my apartment and the sounds that came out of me were not before, not since. Although I did mm-hmm. hear in a movie once somebody go to that same place of real primal Mm. release. 
And then I just immediately decided now my focus is just on like finding the best support team around me. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to do once I find that support team is I'm just going to focus on me and I'm going to focus on being the best me, the least afraid me to protect my children. Mm-hmm. It could sound a little bit like you're ignoring the truth. And it just really, it really was not that. I became very focused on everything I could do. I learned how to do Vedic meditation. I got a meditation teacher. I immediately began that practice of meditating 20 minutes in the morning, 20 mm-hmm. minutes at the end of the day. I did choose a doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center who was really a scientist, was very descriptive and clear with me about what my diagnosis was. I had a form of non-follicular, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It is a slow-growing form of lymphoma, which means that your first treatment protocol is called watch and wait. And they basically mark where you have tumors in your body, and then you go back on a routine basis every month to get some Mm -hmm. sort of scan every three months to get a deeper PET scan until certain triggers have happened that mean, okay, now it's time for you to have treatment. For me, that took close to a year. Wow. I had visible tumors, which looked Mm -hmm. like swollen glands all in my neck, in my armpits, in my groin. And then I had a really big one inside of me that I just couldn't see. Yeah. And it was in May of the following year that the doctor said, okay, now's the time we're going to start the treatment. And I knew the treatment for this type of lymphoma was going to be big, (laughs) was going to have big impact on my body in all the ways. And the day, the test that I had taken, the PET scan that I had taken, it takes some amount of time till the next day, a couple of days before they give you a result. I was sitting in the waiting room And I was looking through a magazine and I remember seeing a picture of somebody with short, straight blonde hair. And at the time, like I had this hair, it was probably a little less bright blonde. (laughs) And I just decided I was going to cut my hair short. And I left the PET scan and I went to my guy, um, actually Lori Cole, who's still an instructor here. We had the same haircut person, Mm -hmm. Matt. She had taken me to him to get a blowout after I had been diagnosed just to kind of like help me feel. Yeah. Mm Self-care. Feel good. And so I went and that day he just, he took this hair, curly, 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 like big hair, and he just chopped it down. And then it kind of became my superhero hair. I had that hair, Mm -hmm. that style of hair for almost a decade following. And the day after I, I that was that my hair was cut, they said, "Yeah, you're going to have to start treatment." Mm-hmm. And there we go. So immediately before the diagnosis, come at me, world! I could do anything. Yeah. Immediately after the diagnosis, panic, rebellion, fuck it up, energy, and then resolve. And the ten months of resolve prepared me for the the ultimate moment of treatment. I'm not the only person that's ever been through treatment. For me, I could talk to you all day long, Meg, about who has it worse than me. (laughs) I Mm. am deep, deep in my gratitude. And I have always been for a really long time. I Every time I wanted to be grateful for my care, for my doctors, for the nurses who were there, for the people that invented the treatment, for my Mm. body, for accepting the drugs, for my veins, like I could go on forever. Mm. And 
those four months of treatment, the path of what it feels like to have your gorgeous hair start to fall out. I shaved my head bald immediately within the first few days of my hair falling out. I could have lasted months longer with hiding it, Um, but it was just not a feeling I wanted to have. So life before, life after, everything after set me up for who I am now and who I am now is exactly who I'm meant to be. There is not one thing that happened in my life that I am not grateful for that I did not learn profoundly from. I don't know, Meg, if I could have learned mm-hmm. these lessons without it, probably. Yeah. I yeah. probably could have, but that's not my life. And I, I honestly spent zero amount of time thinking about that. Mm-hmm. That's my way. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That is just unimaginable and such such a place of non-control right and it's like there's literally you're like hands up like nothing you know nothing and that is just the allowing that you have to have right the the faith the trust the gratitude even coming from a place of always caring for other people right i'm a male to well now i'm I have to allow people to care for me, you know? And this was, and I, I want to get back into your story, but this just kind of has been on my mind lately. I just had a really good friend who's, he just got diagnosed with brain cancer and uh, it's scary, you know? And he's that same type. I mean, just listening to your story, it's just like, man, you're just describing my friend who's like always caring for other people. And it's like, how do you allow yourself to to be loved, to be cared for? When how do you transition from that place of, you know, I'm going to control what, like, I can do for other people because I can do it all, right? Like, yeah. I can do anything, and I'm going to help everybody. How do you transition to letting yourself be cared for? Oh, such a such a beautiful question, Meg. Well, first of all. I'm just going to like wrap my whole heart around you and around your friend for this time. And I only imagine a positive outcome. That's Mm -hmm. all. That's the only thing that my brain will go to is a positive outcome and all the incredible learning that he and you and his whole community are going to have. That's what I'm going to put out in the Mm -hmm. manifestation. Yeah, of Um, course. I think there is no easy answer. It took a lot of work to actually and not just verbally embody Mm self-love. I had gotten, for whatever reason, not without blame, I'm not saying it without blame, it's just circumstance, wanted to be bold, but always actually kind of taking, putting myself in the backseat. And then being like, I'm fine, I'm fine, it's cool, I'm fine, I'm fine. And even though it's not a great thing to admit, like, am I keeping score of all the stuff I'm taking? I probably was, even though I wasn't actively saying it. I think somehow, I don't know, is, is it martyrdom or it's kind of like, I'm fine, I'm fine. In some way, dulling my individuality and my impact, truly, for being most embodied in myself. And I had a 
it's funny, I say it like this. Sometimes I had written an essay about it. I had a therapist and I kind of put it in quotes and I'm not sure that I'm putting it in quotes to honor his work or to honor a therapist's career path because he wasn't technically, but he was a neuroscientist, a Buddhist thinker. Mm-hmm. And he believed a lot in biofeedback. And so for seven years, I had an ongoing coaching relationship with him. His name was Steve. And we did a lot, a lot, a lot of real neuroscience brain training, Mm -hmm. including really simple mantra work of self-love and approval. So even though I'm feeling overwhelmed, I love and approve of myself completely. Mm -hmm. And it's that love and approval completely, even though ultimately with repetition, practice, consistency, will create neural pathways that allow for genuine self-love and acceptance. And it's until that point where I did the work to love me, even though Mm -hmm. anything that happened to me, anything I felt, anything I had chosen that maybe I wouldn't have chosen again in my life, despite any of it, here, right now, I love and approve of myself completely. That willingness to do the work to get there is -hmm. the only thing that really genuinely allowed me to have real meaningful, long lasting forever connection and love and allowed myself to just be here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I would love for people to, that's a beautiful practice and, and you don't have to wait until something big and huge and, and traumatic where, you know, grief stricken happens in your life. I wonder why people, there's these big aha moments when it comes to like life changing. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've had the same similar experiences, just like when something big happens, you get these yeah. aha moments and it's just like, yeah. it causes you to allow the present moment, right. Yeah. Versus trying to control what already has been or control what hasn't happened yet. And you just get this intense moment of presence and clarity where it's like, Hey, this stuff matters. And I'm going to start to focus on, on me. So even if someone isn't, isn't at that point in their life, how can they allow that practice to come into their lives? So what's a good intro way to get into that? It's a great question. I honestly think doing anything, if the focus is to be mindful, present, and kind to yourself, any Mm -hmm. sort of practice of that is going to be beneficial, right? Mm -hmm. To me, a starting point, sometimes I'll, I'll think about it. For example, I have had to work and learn and listen how to best interact and communicate with each of my three children, right? That's one. I have to do that for everybody that I'm in regular communication with because we each come with our own thing. And I was talking to my son on the phone the other day, my youngest son. He has moments where he wants to share. He has moments where you might bring up a topic and like, know that now he's shut down. And what I have learned myself into doing 
as a mother and therefore coach in some way of him Mm -hmm. is to help him come out of his own body, observe himself Mm -hmm. and then just go like, Oh, okay. That's what happened. So I want to say, Oh, Jude, can you see how (laughs) open you were to, and then as soon as you make a choice that benefits you, you start to have self-doubt and then you just want to take a step back because you're questioning whether you deserve it or whatever. And yeah, you just observe whatever it is, selfish. Yeah. He no, was, I love that. I, I love being the observer of your thoughts. That's it. So, without judgment, without any judgment, like, oh, Seriously, I just did that. I got so ragey. I started to sweat or I shut down or I tried to tell you what to do. Yeah. Okay. Melanie and I could not stop talking. So tune into part two. We're going to go more into losing the need for control, letting go of the life that you think should be, letting go of that version of yourself that you think should be and getting back to your true self. And the best way to do that being selfish and not feeling bad about it. So check it out.